Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is Lauren Peters, Wealth Management Advisor at Helm Godfrey, Stuart Lewis, Business Line Manager for VCTs at Octopus Investments, and from Investors Chronicle, Personal Finance Writer Kate Bailey. This week's portfolio clinic features a reader and his wife who wish to retire in about eight years. They have various assets, including around 800000 in cash, and want some views on how to allocate them going forward to generate a 5% total return and 5% income. Lauren, you were one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio. So first of all, in the current investment climate, is a return of 5% a year and an income of 5% realistically achievable with any kind of portfolio of any size? Well, I think that investing should always be about the longer term rather than the short term. Over longer time frames, many funds are still showing annualised returns in excess of 5%. But we are experiencing a great deal of short-term volatility in the markets. Uh, The FTSE 100 can and does fluctuate by a couple of percent even in a day. And as we have just seen, a fall of 20% can happen in even six months. Um, So this has an impact on funds and investor portfolios. Along with considering the length of time or time horizon for your portfolio, you need to think very carefully about risk. Not so long ago, pre-financial crisis you could get a 5% return virtually risk-free by putting your money in a savings account. But those days are over. So savings rates are around 1%, but people still want that 5%. I think what's happening now is that people are finding themselves attracted to higher and higher risk assets in a bid to chase better returns. So smaller, lower risk portfolios will struggle to achieve 5%. Larger, higher risk portfolios will have a better chance but we'll have to endure more more volatility and ensure they can invest for long enough to iron this out. Okay, uh, what kind of assets could one of these larger portfolios invest in to try and achieve a high income of um, 5%? There, there are some decent performing funds out there still. The best performing are showing sort of three-year cumulative returns in excess of 20% and five-year returns in excess of 40 or 50 partly due to the market rally at the back end of 2014 into mid-2015, much of the growth coming from smaller companies, actually. But again, short-term volatility is an issue, particularly with oil prices down at the moment, um, growth in China slowing, and potentially Brexit on the horizon. So it's difficult to predict which region or sector will deliver high income in the future. So usually, as a financial advisor, I would say sensible to diversify to some extent both in terms of asset allocation, so that's equities versus bonds, property and so on, and sectors such as maybe healthcare, energy, technology, amongst others. You've got to remember as well that a return of, say, 5% doesn't mean very much if it's a gross return. So how much of that will be lost on fees, taxes, Mm -hmm. inflation? At Helm Godfrey, we're always looking to maximise investors' net returns, could they be holding their investments in a tax wrapper, for example? Should they put money into a pension rather than an ISA to claim the tax relief? Everyone eligible to contribute can get a 20% uplift at the moment to their contribution. So for people nearing retirement, it might be sensible to do this and then potentially leave the money in cash for, for the time being. Why risk your immediate 20% return when the markets are volatile as they are now? Now, um, thinking about asset allocation, you said it should be diversified. Um, for an income strategy, is it any kind of 
let's say, particular proportion as to, you know, what assets should uh, account for, you know, each part of the portfolio? Well, again, it depends mm. on the individual investor's ability to tolerate the risk and the length of time they're, they're planning to invest for, as well as whether or not they intend to draw that income down or leave it to mm. reinvest. So if you're looking to draw money out soon, it's good to keep a certain proportion of your portfolio in fairly steady, safer assets with little risk to the capital. So for that, you're talking, you know, typically cash, government bond funds, even corporate bond funds. For the longer term, where risk allows, some equity funds will usually be appropriate. But in terms of what you should hold, it's, it's a good question. Um, commodity prices are low at the moment, so is now the right time to buy in? Everyone's living for longer which points to healthcare and medical technologies. Technology overall has been doing quite well, fueled by greater demand for social media, for example. Okay. Now, what sort of investment should you avoid when pursuing a high income strategy? Well, broadly lower risk assets, because typically they are not going to return um, the 5% at the moment. But if you are determined to pursue a high income strategy, you need to ask yourself probing questions again about the risk that you're going to take on how comfortable are with taking that. So have you lost money before? How did it make you feel, for example? What are the consequences? From a financial advisor's perspective, what are the consequences of losing 10% of your portfolio, 20% more? What will that mean to you? Will it mean you have to work longer before you can retire? How will it affect your standard of living? And will your partner cope, for example? So beyond that, you may want to adopt a strategy such as a more actively managed portfolio where maybe a professional who has the time and the experience can sell you out of underperforming investments in a timely fashion rather than passively holding. Okay. Now, um, you touched on the issue of losses. um, And you also mentioned um, in your um, comments on the reader portfolio that this particular reader and his wife should try and preserve their assets because they've got a rather large portfolio already. Um, The markets are really volatile at the moment. So, um, you know, what what are the ways, what are the best ways for investors to try and preserve their gains in this environment? Well, as as we looked at his portfolio, we realised that actually he's got pretty much enough money to meet the retirement he wants. So if that's his primary objective, it kind of makes sense at the moment to safeguard those assets instead of risking them unnecessarily. Secondly, he told us that his wife is sadly very ill. So here there's a, a, a possibility that they'll need to bring forward their retirement. It would be terrible if they were unable to do this because their investments were in volatile assets and those assets had fallen substantially. Now, he's got a number of direct investments, including AIM stocks, which are very volatile. Um, There's a place for AIM shares for some investors, particularly for IHT planning, actually. But for most people, I would not suggest they invest in AIM shares within their retirement portfolio. So as the reader found, companies on AIM are fledgling companies, and some do go under. So given the information we have about the reader... It would be sensible to start safeguarding a larger proportion of their portfolio, possibly ring fencing the minimum amount that they need and then taking more risk with the surplus where they're able to do that uh, within their risk tolerance. So timing is everything, though. Um, You don't necessarily want to crystallise losses on accounts where this is just due due to short term volatility in the markets rather than something intrinsically wrong with that company or fund that you're invested in. 
So an active strategy would help here looking to exit investments when prices are sufficiently high, crystallising those gains. Okay. Now, thinking about the assets that you might um, look to diversify or um, de-risk, bonds were traditionally um, an option for this. But in recent years, there's been concerns over issues such as liquidity. And um, uh, I guess recent history has shown that bonds are not necessarily very uncorrelated with equities. Um, mm. However, um, you know, investors have to go somewhere. So are there any particular areas of bonds that wealth preservation investors could consider at the moment? Well, there is a saying that in a crisis, the only thing that goes up is correlation. <laughs> so we have seen you know, more correlation between bonds and equities at the moment. Historically, bonds were seen as a good hedge against equities. And certainly a few years ago, you could get you know, 6 8% from, from bank bonds that were pretty, pretty low risk, actually. So that can certainly work for wealth preservation, um, even now. So you know, for wealth preservation, bonds still have a place. And maturity dates, particularly if you're going to invest directly into bonds, can be timed to coincide with the need for that cash flow. Now, the other thing the um, readers had in the portfolio was lots and lots of cash. Um, the rates you can earn on this are negligible, but um, you know, what instances is it suitable to hold cash um, at the moment? Right. So, I mean, the rates are practically non-existent in a portfolio at the moment. There are one or two fairly good savings accounts around, actually, that are pretty good for cash. But to my mind, holding cash at the moment isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, many fund managers think the same, holding close to their limits in cash. The biggest risk to cash is obviously inflation, but inflation at the moment is flat. So, you know, the risk there is minimised, um, particularly over the shorter term. Holding a fair amount of, of cash at times like this also means that you can take advantage of any attractive investments that come your way. Drip feeding money rather than investing in a lump sum as well uh, will mean you can benefit from pound cost averaging, which is the principle that regular smaller investments should deliver a better return overall as you buy more units uh, when prices are lower. Okay. Now, you said there's some um, good savings accounts. Uh, are savings accounts the only option or are there any other sort of places that are you know, good to park your cash at the moment? Well, again, it depends on the investor, you know, how much cash they have. Is that surplus cash? Is that cash that they need to access in the shorter term? All right. Thank you, Lauren. Some um, helpful suggestions there. Now, from April this year, the amount investors can put into a pension over a lifetime will fall from 1.25 million to 1 million. This might sound like a lot, but reasonably well-off investors who make regular contributions and whose investments do well could easily beach this, so they'll need to look to other options. Our first port of call, after you've used up your pensions allowance, is the Individual Savings Account, or ISA for short. But if you use up this as well, there's a, an annual allowance of um, 15,240, you might want to look to tax advantage schemes such as venture capital trusts and enterprise investment schemes. Stuart, first of all, what is a, a venture capital trust or VCT for short? And why is it relevant to investors saving for or already in retirement? Venture capital trusts were set up by the UK government back in 1995 as part of a raft of measures to encourage investment into the UK's smaller companies. Octopus launched its first VCT in 2002, and since then we've grown to be the largest provider of VCTs in the country. 
I'm quite often asked, what is a VCT? Now, the way I always like to answer this and think about it is comparing them to investment trusts, something, an investment vehicle that many people are familiar with. So investment trusts are a company that sole purpose is to invest in the shares of other companies. Just like you might see an investment trust that specialises in China or an investment trust that specialises in India, you can see specialised investment trusts that focus on a small subsection of the UK smaller companies. Now, these companies are often uh, high, growing quickly and in looking for access to funds to accelerate that growth further. Now, the government recognised this and to try and encourage investment into these smaller growing companies um, offers a range of attractive tax benefits um, to invest into, into a venture capital trust and fund these companies. Now, some of these tax benefits work in a similar way to how they work on a pension and ISA. So for a venture capital trust, investors could look forward to a 30% upfront tax relief on the value of the initial investment. Now, that works in a very similar way to a pension that people will be familiar with. So if I invest £10,000 into a venture capital trust today, I'll be able to claim £3,000 of that off my tax bill come tax year end. There's also a host of other um, tax advantages for, for investors as well. So VCTs have the ability to pay out tax-free dividends as well as tax-free capital growth in a similar way to an ISA. And so there's no, there's no tax to pay upon exiting an investment. Now, there is another option for um, investors, Enterprise Investment Schemes or EIS. How do these differ from the VCTs? So they were both launched by the UK government over 20 years ago as part of a raft of measures, including the alternative investment market, to encourage investment into smaller companies. Now, VCTs and EIS actually have a very different structure to them, although they are often talked about in the same breath. So VCTs are, as I mentioned before, a collective investment company. So investors are accessing a portfolio of, say, 50 companies as soon as they invest. Enterprise investment scheme investors, on the other hand, have to hold the shares in the underlying companies themselves. And this means that investors will need to either create a portfolio of 50 companies themselves or uh, outsource that to a discretionary fund manager who will do it on their behalf. Now, these different structures actually lead to a few other key differences in between the two schemes. So they have different holding periods in order to retain the upfront tax relief. An EIS company must be held for three years, whereas a VCT must be held for five years. And EIS actually has a a couple of additional useful tax benefits, such as capital gains tax deferral and the ability to qualify for business property relief if shares are held for two years. The difference in structure means that they're often used by very different people. So the ability of a VCT for an investor, you're buying into an established portfolio straight away. The minimum investment is sometimes £5,000 or around that mark, which makes it very accessible for, for a, lot of, a lot of mainstream investors. EIS, on the other hand, due to the complexity of managing portfolios, individual portfolios of 20 to 20 companies or so, is typically more complex to run, and so there'll be a, a higher minimum investment limit. The different structure and the different tax reliefs often use, lead to different uses for them as well. So venture capital trusts, by virtue of them being a collective investment scheme, are often used alongside ISAs and pensions as a, a wealth accumulation vehicle. EIS are kind of polarised into two uses. So you see a lot of private 
individuals investing into EIS. If they wanted to invest in the firm of a family friend, for example, the Enterprise Investment Scheme would be a great vehicle by which to do that. Due to the capital gains tax deferral and qualification for business property relief, you also see a lot of people considering Enterprise Investment Schemes when they're thinking about estate planning and at the other, the decumulation size and preserving capital side of their, their investment planning journey. Okay, now the tax breaks and investment potential of the smaller companies in these uh, investments put their assets into sound very attractive, but what are the risks? Absolutely right. And the, the, the tax benefits, the attractive tax benefits are, are there to in, for, for a reason and to encourage people to take on the risk of investing in smaller companies. Now, smaller companies individually, they have great growth potential, but they also have a higher failure rate than a lot of their larger counterparts. There are a few other um, risks to think about when considering VCTs. So who are you going to sell your shares to? So there's a, a quirk in the market because upfront tax relief is so attractive and is only available on newly issued shares. Very few people want to buy secondhand shares on the market which is perfectly logical. So most VCTs will actually operate a buyback policy and buy the investor's shares back after five years. So it's worth the investor looking around at the track record of the VCT houses to see who's got a good track record of being able to provide that liquidity at exit. I suppose the final point to consider for investors is the time horizon of investment. So in order to, to maintain and retain the upfront tax relief, you have to hold investments for a minimum of five years. So anyone who needs access to them with to the money or might need access to the money within that five-year period probably shouldn't consider a VCT. Okay, and, and perhaps um, um, we, we should add actually that um, when we when you say they invest in smaller companies, most VCTs and pretty much all EIS invest in unlisted smaller companies, which I suppose is, uh, you could say, maybe is an added risk again. They're not even on, on the stock market. Exactly right. So as part of the qualification criteria to, in, to have a VCT qualifying company, mm. they have to be unlisted or listed on the alternative investment um, market. Yes, yeah. Okay. Now, um, bearing that in mind, what kind of investors are VCT and EAS suitable for and um, who should avoid them? Yeah, good good question. So, um, as mentioned before, VCTs and EIS actually have slightly different uses. So, I'll focus in the, in the first instance on VCTs. We don't typically see people using them as a fixed percent of a portfolio. We don't think that's the best way to consider them, and we don't think that's the way to think about them. What we do see is people using them to fulfill a specific need in their lives. So, um, re as you mentioned earlier, recent changes to pensions quite wide-ranging and has, we're seeing quite an increase in demand for VCTs as an alternative way to complement existing pension planning. I think it wasn't long ago back in 2010 when the lifetime allowance was 1.8 million um, and as you said before that's dropping to 1 million next from, from April. Now that shifts from being a problem or a concern for ultra high net worth individuals to actually a mass affluent problem and so we're seeing a number of advisors a number of investors coming to us and asking about VCTs as a potential alternative. I think there's a there's a couple of other areas where we're we're seeing increased demand for for venture capital trusts as well. So one of them is and uh with changes to the dividend tax coming in April. So it, it's a great headline message that you have to have a FTSE portfolio of £100,000 before you're paying dividend tax next year. But the real people this change has been targeted on are the army of small businesses who pay themselves typically a very low income and pay themselves via dividends. Now, that will be coming more expensive for people from April. So we're seeing two things. 
One is ahead of the changes to dividend taxation. People are taking surplus cash out of their business, obviously not working capital, but money that they don't need in the business ahead of the changes. And if they're comfortable locking that money up for five years, that can be a very interesting solution by extracting it into a VCT. And it enables people to do it in a very tax efficient manner. I think with the the increase in price coming forward to next year as well, I think actually you'll see the continuation of that of that trend. Another aspect that is playing into the hands of VCTs at the moment is the general government and media clamp down on tax avoidance is pushing people into far more mainstream forms of tax planning. And schemes like the Venture Capital Trusts, which are um, supported by the UK government and survived through successive Labour and Conservative governments, uh, people are finding attractive as a way of doing so. Now, the government recently tightened up the investment rules um, on what um, VCT and EAS can invest in. And and these rules include um, not being able to invest in a company more than seven years after its first commercial sale, which has more than 250 employees, uh, meaning the funds will really have to target young, small and arguably higher risk companies. Now, EIS, um, as I understand already, kind of did that but not all VCTs did so do you think VCTs in general will become even higher risk than they already are? Not necessarily it depends very much on the investment mandate of the VCT there's a wide range of VCTs in the market some of whom will be very heavily impacted by this and some of whom will have very little impact as a result of the changes I think there's a a few points I'd call out so one is the change to new rules doesn't affect existing investments so if I look at our Octopus AIM VCTs there's a portfolio of 70 companies in there the majority of which are profitable and dividend paying the new rules won't have any impact on those existing investments in the companies and will only impact new investments made by the VCT. So any change in risk profile will be gradual to the collective investment vehicle. What you may see with that as well is that new investments made this year under the new rules, by the time that their older investments are washing out, they will become established companies in their own right. So um, so it's not a given that the risk profile will change, but obviously the risk of every new, every new company that's invested in is potentially slightly higher, but the risk profile of the VCT may not change. I suppose the other, just the other point to call out is that if I, if I look at an example of a VCT that has been will have no change to, to what it's been doing for the last last five, six years, is Octopus Titan VCT. Now, this is the biggest VCT in the market, um, and it invests into early-stage companies with the potential for high growth. And um, we, we have a really... So these companies are exactly where the government wants mm. in VCT investment. So you're doing it already, to. basically, yeah. Exactly yeah. right. And and people will be surprised at how big some of those startup companies mm. can grow to. So we've we've got a very successful track record with the likes of Zoopla, which we backed from a very early-stage startup, which is now a household name, Gray's, the, the snacking company, and Secret Escapes, the members-only travel company. The most recent one we've we've had, which we announced only this month, actually, is SwiftKey. Mm-hmm. It's the mobile um, mobile phone keyboard app that's now used on over 300 million phones worldwide, and it's a great example of where UK VCT money has enabled British business to take on the likes of Silicon Valley. Now, Lauren, um, what's your view on VCTs and EIS, and, and have you ever used them with your clients? Well, I mean, as you know, just outlined, uh, they're not for everybody, but certainly for some people, they are very attractive. I think also I agree that the appetite for them is likely to grow, um, particularly with the highest earners having their annual allowance cut from 
um, April this year tapered down from £40,000 to £10,000. So where are they going to get their tax relief from? We've already seen a lot of growth in the small company sector as well. And this is what VCTs and EISs invest in. So as an investor, you typically typically get quite a lot of, of information on exactly what you're investing in. As outlined as already, there are some great companies who are making some, some good strides forward um, that you can invest in within this kind of vehicle. So certainly we'll be looking to uh, encourage more people who it's right for to invest in this kind of thing. Okay. Thank you, Stuart and Lauren. Now, another high-octane investment area that can generate sky-high returns is healthcare and biotech, but this has been having a wobble after a strong run. However, Kate has been speaking to the manager of one of our IC Top 100 funds who thinks healthcare and biotech is about to bounce back, or at least some of it. Kate, first of all, why has biotech fallen so far? Well, it's for a few reasons. I mean, it's been hit really hard in recent months and actually it's been the worst performing sector in closed-ended trusts since the start of the year. And it's in response to a few things. So for a start, this is kind of a correction to what was a really soaring market. I mean, last year, everybody was talking about a biotech bubble. So to some extent, this is a bursting of that bubble. Um, And the general slowdown and, and this kind of crazy market volatility that we've seen since the start of the year has also really impacted this sector um, because it's always been seen as a, as a high risk area so when people are feeling nervous generally and are going risk off as we call it no one wants to put their money in biotech basically but there are also some other reasons so the presidential election for example was having a big impact on the sector and this is um, in response to a tweet that Hillary Clinton sent last year where she basically said that she was going to you know, take on the drug market and and price gauging in the US drug market. And also there's this ongoing case of former chief exec of Turing Pharmaceuticals, Martin Scarelli, um, who's quite a notorious kind of controversial <laughs> figure, um, who pumped up the price of Daraprim, which is used to treat HIV by 5,000%. And so there's been a lot of controversy around that. So we've got all of these kind of factors coming together really to, to hit biotech and healthcare this year. Okay, but um, you were speaking to a manager who um, is, well, not gloomy at all. Which manager is this and why is he so optimistic? Uh, Well, this is Sam Isley, who's a veteran investor and manager of Worldwide Healthcare. Now, obviously, as the manager of a biotech fund, he he is going to be uh, optimistic, but he thinks that actually we're going to see a recovery in the next two months, probably, because he says that there's nothing fundamentally different about these stocks now. Nothing has changed investment case for him Um, and actually this is all a a more majority about sentiment and people just really going off off the market okay now there was one area that he didn't like is perhaps uh, perhaps perhaps a bit controversial and what was that yeah he really really does not like uk big pharma and in fact it's quite anti-uk stocks generally i mean i should say that this fund is interesting and different to other biotech funds because it's split between big pharma and big biotech so pharma being on a very basic level chemical and biotech involving live tissue uh, or live cells so they're two distinct areas now he really dislikes uk big pharma and that's astrazeneca gsk are the big names and quite negative on those two just because he says they haven't been at the forefront of innovation they're kind of slowing down they're not the the new ones who are bringing out the new exciting drugs basically but he does really like big biotech and those are mainly 
companies based in the US. But yeah, so quite negative on the UK as a centre for innovation, basically. Okay, and are there any other sort of like companies or shares that he does like? Um, so he really likes Bristol Myers Squibb, and that's based in the US. And he does hold some big pharma, so he holds Roche and Novartis. Swiss um, ones, yeah. Yeah, Swiss Not ones. British. <laughs> um, yeah. And AbbVie. Uh, American again, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, now, Lauren, what's your view on healthcare and biotech funds at the moment? And are you advising any of your clients to allocate to them? Um, I think it's a fascinating area, actually, and one I think most people are fairly happy to to put money into psychologically, um, as opposed to you know tobacco, alcohol, that kind of thing. It makes sense that this area will do well. If you think about the fact that people are living longer but maybe living longer with health problems, Alzheimer's, for example, cancer, diabetes. So I think we'll see some great leaps in this area in technology and pharmaceuticals in the next few years and few decades. But how volatile it will be in the meantime is, a, is another question entirely. OK, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Lauren Peters, Wealth Management Advisor at Helm Godfrey, Stuart Lewis, Business Line Manager for VCTs at Octopus Investments and Personal Finance Writer Kate Bearley. You can read more on how to generate a decent income in retirement, tax-efficient investing and biotech and healthcare in this week's magazine and on the website. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.